welcome to another episode of Cheap Smut. My name is Katie Mizell. And my name is Carl Mizell. And welcome to our fourth author profile featuring the fantastic Opal Rain all the way from Australia. Welcome. Hello. Hello. <laughs> well, yes. howdy, mate. <laughs> thank, you for ha- thank you for joining us. Uh, for those of you who might not be familiar, Opal Rain is an Australian author of adult paranormal and monster romances, uh, and she is best known for her Duskwalker Bride series, which features uh, a lot of skull-headed monsters, yes. which we are we're big fans of. And I just want to pull back the curtain for the listeners real quick. This is the craziest thing we've ever done, because you are in the future, functionally, for us. Uh, it is roughly noon on a Wednesday uh, in Australia, and it is 9 p.m. on a Tuesday here in Michigan, America, USA. <laughs> America, USA. <laughs> I'm very, very in the future. Yeah. You are. Is it like out there? <laughs> it's fun. Um, the same. <laughs> it's it's it can be. It it is what it is. It's Australia. It's full of spiders, and everything wants to kill us. But um, today's actually a pretty special day. I actually didn't think about it until I booked it. But today's my birthday. <gasps> no way! Yeah. That's fantastic! I didn't even birthday. realize. <laughs> oh well, we will keep it super light and super brief for you. I remember when when I when we were setting this up, you had mentioned that you were having a friend come in, and it was you were approaching a, a birthday. So I, we're honored, and hopefully we can make this entertaining for you. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just really funny because like I've 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 had some people starting to do the whole like ah, oh, and then like I just know that once. American time rolls over, it's just going to flood in now. And I'm just yeah. like, <laughs> you could do that's what it's like. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, I, I, I am a big, a big fan of uh, Ringworld, the, the science fiction novel Ringworld by uh, Robert or Larry Niven. And uh, at the beginning of the book, the character wants to keep celebrating his 200th birthday. So he can just he keeps going. He parties until 1159 p.m. And then he jumps in a teleporter to go back an hour in a time in a different time zone. And so he just, yeah. you know. You could do that. I mean, you're in the future. <laughs> it's like, yeah, celebrating for a little bit longer. Yeah, that's, exactly. what, that's what it's do, like. Do, that time zone difference really makes a difference on stuff like that because, like, different dates. So Right. Yeah. yeah. I know. I remember. I, I was so meticulous. I, was, I, 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 I learned a lot about Australian time zones setting this up. I, re- I learned that you guys have some time zones that are only 30 minutes apart. And then there's one time zone, I believe it's called Lord Howe. That's just this one little pocket down there. And I think it's like I have no idea. There you go. I was just and fascinated. Like it's, it's weird too, because like um, I just moved from Sydney, which is about nine and a half hours south, and they have um, daylight savings, but up here in Queensland they don't. And so like I'm so used to it just changing, and it didn't change, and so now everyone is an hour behind me, and I'm like I'm even more in the future. <laughs> That's so wild. Yeah, we we had the same thing here. There, like the state of Arizona doesn't honor it. But then there's a county that does. But then within that county, there's uh, an indigenous people's reservation that does not. So depending on where you go, it just it gets crazy. But you didn't join us to talk about time. Uh, (laughs) You joined us to talk about smut, uh, specifically the smut that you write. I hope you don't mind that. We don't use it as a pejorative around here. No, that's okay. Okay, excellent. Uh, the central conceit of the show is that we like to read inexpensive, or she reads inexpensive, uh, cheap novels, four ninety nine or less, and comes on and explains it to me. Uh, and so the Duskwalker Bride series, that was the first introduction that we had to you. And if I'm not mistaken, that was the first introduction that pretty much everybody who knows you had to you. It, it, would, it, would that be a fair assessment? 
Yeah, I would say, yeah, about 1% know me through my other books, um, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and refresh our memories. So you have the Duskwalker Bride series, and then what is your other series? So I also have the Witchbound series, which features like uh, dragon and witch pairings. But but what makes it special is that the dragons can change like interchangeably to a human form and a dragon form, but they can also change their size. And so they go from gigantic to tiny, um, which means that they do, in fact, fuck in their dragon form. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the point of being a dragon? Oh, my goodness. Right? That's. I love dragon books. I haven't read a dragon book in a long time. I'm going to have to add that to my list. There you go. Yeah, uh, think I- like smog, but like... Yeah, good enough to fit between your, your thighs. Oh my so. god, I wonder. I love it. Smog, but fucks. Yeah, yeah. smog, yeah. but fuck a bull. Um, fuck a bull. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. So I have that, and then I also have a pirate romance duology, which doesn't really feature any uh, fantasy, um, but it's like modern writing style but historic um so instead of being being like he ripped open her blouse and her bosom fell out it's more like he sucked her tits and ass you know what i mean like it's, yeah. <laughs> i i, I want to preemptively give a bit of a shout out to kaya carrington russell uh i mentioned before we started recording i in advance of this conversation i went and listened to that conversation and she had a lot of great questions that I wanted to sort of maybe expand upon and that sort of thing. So thank you, Kaya, uh, if you're hearing this, for uh, asking such great questions. But something you said during that conversation that I thought was fascinating was that you mentioned early on in your career that you had a couple of books that you had released and then just took off the market. Uh, and, and without I, – I don't I, – they're, they're gone. You don't have to talk about it. But could you sort of uh, – one thing that we're fascinated with here is the autonomy of art. Like once you put it out in the world, there's no way to gauge the response to it, but this is the reverse. You, you took it off the market. Could, would you mind talking a little bit about the mindset behind that? So every author's journey is very different. Um, and some of it is not easy for everyone. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll preemptive and say this, that I grew up rather, poor. Um, I didn't have a lot of money. And so I was trying as hard as I can to pay for editors within my budget. And so I wrote a book, I wrote a few books and I got them edited and then that wasn't enough. And so I then literally scrounged all of my cash together, worked a lot of overtime doing very physically intensive laborious jobs to pay for another editor who once again didn't do well. And then by the fourth editor, I gave up. Um, yeah. After Assault to Keep came out, um, I just, my heart was, I was so disheartened by that point, by the series and just the, the constant negative editorial views that I had, no matter of the fact that I had hired four people for it. I just, I, I had to give up. I just went, I, can't, I don't have the time, the energy or the mind frame right now to sit there with those books and pour myself into them because I've lost my passion and my spark for them. Um, and so like, I would have had to go over them again with what I had already learned. And then I would have to then go and once again, pay for another editor. Um, and my process is now very different. Um, like I was on my own, I didn't have any author friends. Um, I didn't have any reader friends. I was, I just went, I want, I wrote this book and I need to get it out. And so I was very, very much on my own. And so, yeah, I, I just decided once a soul to keep came out and it started doing well, I was like, I'm just going to pull them off I'm going to pull them off um maybe one day I'll get back to them um but like I said I have I have unfortunately lost my spark for that series which means I don't I even have like the fifth book written of that series um and I just 
the idea of sitting down with them now, I'm just like, I don't know if I can. So, and I just, I didn't want, I didn't want readers to go back and read that and judge me for that because editing is not an author's fault. Um, people seem to think it is. It is when we don't go out and try and get one and we think we can do it ourselves. But when we, when we are actively trying to get them edited within our budgets as best as we can and we get hit hard for it, you just, it really hurts because, like, you're trying your hardest. And so I didn't want readers to go back, read my um, Adeus Chronicles just to judge me for that because it's not my fault. Um, you know, I tried as hard as I can within my budget. Um, sure, it is my fault in the terms of, like, I could have just saved a little bit more and gone out. But the biggest thing is is that I'm not an editor. And so, like, I read over all of my books after they were edited and I thought they were great. You know, I was like, yay, they look amazing. I didn't see any, like, major mistakes. I was like, cool, I can deal with that. But no, apparently crawling with them. And, like, I didn't know that because, like, like I said, I'm not an so. Right. I, I, the, you also mentioned in that interview you your first your first drafts are just – quite almost quite literally word vomit like you know you've you said something that i thought was great was 100 bad words is is better than zero words on the page have you been ever gone back after now that you basically edit yourself have you ever gone back and read the first draft and been completely unable to figure out what you meant in a sentence so my process generally for me is i do three rounds um i do two rounds of edits now because i'm a little bit more experienced but it used to be three um, but yeah, so the first round is me just, like I said, word vomit, just like get it out. Like, doesn't matter if it's good, doesn't matter if it's bad, just get it onto the paper. And then I do my first round of editing and then <laughs> the number of times I've sat there going, I don't even know what I was trying to say, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's bad. And yeah. yeah. And then by, by that point, that's like, that's the point where I start like deleting stuff. I'm like, Oh, I just went on a tangent here. And like, that's a rant. And like, I don't know if I want that anymore. And I start polishing. And then by the last time I'm like, okay, everything should make sense now. Let's just see how much I can fancy it up. Yeah. I, I meant to, you, the, the series that we were talking about earlier, you actually, so, you kind of led me right to this question, which is, are, is there any chance and you said you've kind of lost your spark for that series right now, and so you're leaving it on the back burner. But is there any chance we're going to get sort of like a Taylor Swift era's version, like an updated Opal's version <laughs> of these books now that you're from, – from a new perspective as – because you are on that writer's journey and you change. If you were the same writer at the end of your career as you were at the beginning of your career, what you probably didn't have much of a career, I would – you know. So is there any chance that our, the readers will get to see that one day? Maybe. Maybe. Like, okay. I, still, I still have them. I still have them. Um, I would like, like I said, I'm a bit tired of the tired and hurt by it. But um, I think maybe in like 10 years, I might just go, oh, screw it. I'm going to bring it back. And like, I'll be, I'll be able to have a fresh set of eyes and a fresh mind. And I can go in and make that book the, what it was supposed to be. And then I can send it to my editor and proofreader and betas and just be like, please, it's all yours now. Fix it. Fix once <laughs> I've I fixed it. Like I, I'll have to go through and change a bit of the story and all that kind of stuff, and then just be like, "You take it from me. I can't look at it anymore." <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe something will come along that'll strike that spark. And what I what I found fascinating when I was doing a little bit of research for this uh, was your, your your diverse interests, your diverse backgrounds. Uh, you are a, a massive anime fan. I am an extreme weeb. Uh, I, I've said this before. I'm I'm 45. 
I'm 45 years old. So when I was in the age where anime would have probably hit the first time, it was completely inaccessible here in America. And I was really interested. You you mentioned uh, that you had pulled a little bit of inspiration uh, from the a- ancient Magus Bride, uh, specifically the character Elias. And then when I as soon as I saw the character, I was like, oh, that's that's Orpheus. That's that that's a Mavka. It looked you know, and this I I know the Mavkas look different uh, and whatnot. And you are you have talked about pulling inspiration from a variety of places, but. Is there any anything sitting in one of your books that somebody might be surprised to be like, oh, I, I, I didn't realize that she took inspiration from this thing and put it in this book, like sort of almost like an Easter egg. Is there anything in there that might surprise a, an avid Opal Rain reader? I really loved Demon Slayer as well. Um, okay. And I really liked the concept that the sun burnt them in Demon Slayer. Of course, my demons are very different especially because like the ones in Demon Slayer, half of them are actually really attractive and I'm sitting there like <laughs> curling my hair. <laughs> They're the bad guy. Like we always love a villain. Um, I couldn't hurt but... you. <laughs> but yeah, so there's like little little stuff like that. Um, if you're if we're going outside of anime, like there's like, quite a few animes that have like inspired me as well, mm. um, but they're more on a smaller scale. Like I really like... Um, uh, magic circles which is in a lot of anime and visually i see that in my head when i write um but a big one would be in every book i have uh about four or five lines of songs just scattered all throughout the books um and like there's a few of um bad mm. omens there's a few of sleep token parkway drive um yeah and then there's like uh Everyone's favorite line, which is, uh, let me melt your heart, is actually from uh, Madonna, um, but it's a Sick Kick remix, um, which is, like, Frozen. And so that's where my brain instantly got that. Um, And then I really like, what's that song? I can't remember the song, but, yeah, it's that one I listened to all the way through, A Soul to Keep. I'll see if I can quickly find it. Um, That's fascinating, though. While you're doing that, you you actually taught me something. What's that? It's like a scavenger hunt inside yeah, a book it, now. Exactly. I, love that. I, I, you, I, I discovered an entirely new genre of music thanks to you, uh, and that is funk. Yes, I love funk. <laughs> I, I was so I, I saw that in your in your bio on your website, and I'm a huge I'm a musician myself, a huge music nerd. And I went digging for it, and that is some extremely my kind of shit right there. So if nothing else, thank you for that. Uh, I definitely can see, because you're also a big fan of slowed down covers or slowed down versions of songs. And I think funk is basically, you know, sort of from what I gleaned, the origins of the old chopped and screwed sort of deep south hip hop from the early aughts here in America, for those of you not familiar um, so thank you for that, uh, for introducing <laughs> me to that. Did you find the song that you were looking for? I did. Uh, Middle of the Night by, oh God, I'm not even going to try her name. Ellie, Eli, no, I can't say the last name. Starts with a D. Um, it's got like a, a pretty little accent in it. And I'm just, I'm not going to try that. I'll just brutalize it. But um, is that is that the one that got covered by Loveless on TikTok? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like that song. Yeah, so, right? And I I listened to A Soul to Keep for that. Um, But Sleep Talk at the moment, uh, Bad Omens for a while. Um, I think that was A Soul to 
Assault to Heal and Assault to Touch. And then Sleep Token has just absolutely gotten me from Assault to Touch onwards. Just constant. <laughs> oh, sorry, um, Sleep Token. No, no, no. Yeah, I, 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 I had only... Someone. I had only heard a sleep token and I was watching a video you because you mentioned it in the in the interview with Kaya and and you came around the stairs. You're getting ready to take the kids up for bath. And you're yeah. like, oh, is that sleep token? Yeah, I know sleep token. Is that your shit? I'm not under a rock. It's um, <laughs> I'm still I'm still um, exploring their discography. Yeah, they had a uh, very popular what 15, 20 second sound on TikTok, which is fantastic because it's like a teeny tiny sample of their best work and then you can get dive in and find what you like. And what you were playing was the most popular stuff they have. So I was like, oh, that I know. That's Sleep Token. And that's Sleep Token from TikTok. So <laughs> Yeah, if you, if you were to look at the bar on YouTube, it was easily the most uh, replayed moment. Is there, is there something about... I mean, Orpheus has the skull head. Sleep Token is all masked. Is that something that resonates with you on a on a, on a creative level? I do like the masking. Could I plan to have some mask-related monsters in the future? Um, but no, the lyrics for me and just his voice is just what get me. Like for me, a, a really good artists will hit me by, by their lyrics and it could just be the smallest snippet in a song and I can hate the absolute rest of the song but if that snippet catches me I'll listen I'll find a way or on YouTube I'll find a way to just play that snippet on repeat um, and I once my brain falls in love with a song I have a tendency to listen to it obsessively can like over and over and so like there's been quite a few number of um, Sleep Token and Bad Omens um, songs where I've listened to them about eight hours and repeat just the one song during a writing session. Um, and then I might switch over to something really strange afterwards. Uh, a good example is last night I was writing and I was listening to, to Sleep Token um, slowed. And, <laughs> and then I went, screw this, and I went to Beauty and the Beast, their intro song <laughs> for the movie, the harp version only, like just a harp cover and that on repeat because <laughs> I needed something completely different and sometimes I need wordless and, yeah, so... I just yeah, their their music really resonates with me, and Vessel's voice really resonates with my ears. So that's I love it. I, I I love I love talking about feeling music. I've I've recently there's a great band uh, called Chick Chick Chick. It's three exclamation points, but it's pronounced Chick Chick Chick. Uh, and I'm the same way. I can latch onto a certain lyric and want to listen to the whole song over and over again. And so I've been listening to their song "Must Be the Moon," uh, and it's it's a line about going out and having a lousy hookup. But there's a line that says, "You could blame it on the music, but that wouldn't be right because I've gotten lucky to some pretty bad tunes." It must be the moon, and I think that <laughs> is such that 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 line. There's so much going on in that line that I just want to listen to it constantly yeah. nonstop. speaking of that in 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 sort of a roundabout way one thing that katie and i talk about a lot is genres romance you, you can't just call it romance it's genres and subgenres and in micro genres and it feels like romance lends itself well to that sort of symbiotic relationship with a bunch of different tropes and and you your books touch on a variety of tropes so do you have any thoughts on what it is about romance that lends itself well to being almost like a, it's almost like a universal solvent like it goes well with everything 
Well, romance is in everything. And that, and I mean that both platon- uh, platonically and, of course, desire and amorously, if that's a word, don't mind me. Um, but, like, <laughs> passion is what drives us. Passion is what gets us up out of the, the bed in the morning. And you can attach that passion to anything, that inspiration to anything. And it's a form of love. Like, I love my phone. You know what I mean? Like, I can have a romance <laughs> with my phone, you know, and, and I, I can have a romance with books and I can have a romance with a sport and I can have a romance with music. And that's what's the glue because we have that and we experience that in almost anything that we do in life. Like, um, you can you can have it with the most randomest of things, like um, going out for a walk, you can be in love with that. And so, therefore, you've got hiking tropes. You know, you, you can you can put it anywhere and that's why because it's, it's a passion-driven – it's not just – love and body and two people it's just it's them plus their interests and that's that's what ties because you can't have two characters that can't get along they need some form of connection and whatever that connection may be is the external love to their internal love wow i i I was i i had a hunch you were going to give us a great answer and you you knocked it right out of the park that was wow that's deep because I, I I think here like we, no but seriously like the 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 notion the word romance or romantic gets thrown around and it, it seems to be only applied to like you said like you know amorous love you know uh, ro- romance but like the the romantic notion that you can romanticize things like there are certain things like I do love walking my dog and putting on the headphones and getting lost for a little bit and what am I going to see what am I going to explore and, and then maybe the song comes on and all of a sudden you're transported to a different place or a different time and so I appreciate that one thing you said uh, while talking to Kai that I that piggybacks off this really well that I thought was fascinating was your distinction between dark romance versus romance with dark themes yeah. Uh, and that is something that we've talked about. Uh, Katie is uh, the obviously the the smut reader in this dynamic. Not a big dark romance fan, correct? Um, it's not that I'm not a fan. It's just I generally don't tend to seek it out. But I've read several dark romances that I also love. Right. Uh, but you you do sort of perk up when you get your your romance with dark themes. Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. I love a good romance with dark themes. I love yeah. I love anything with dark themes because it touches my little emo heart. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm still that same you know 15 year old girl and thrashing out to my chemical romance inside my head. Absolutely. <laughs> would you so would you mind just sort of kind of elaborating on that because I, I I think that's a point that I I would like as many listeners to hear as possible. Yeah. So for me, how I see dark romance versus dark um, themes in a romance is that dark romance is the romance between the two characters is dark. So there's a lot of there's a lot of abuse. There's um, some of it consensually, some of it not, you know, and they touch on those sort of darker kinks. Like we're going into like rape kinks. We're going into blood kinks. We're going into um, somnophilia, which is where um, one person is asleep and is not aware. Um, and so that is that is darkness within the romance, the internal romance that is happening, whereas um, dark themes is external things. So there could be touches of dark um, darkness between the two characters, but it's external. So the female or the main character, male character, whichever, they could have experienced 
rape or abuse or domestic violence from outside, but they're not receiving it from their partner. And that's the difference is like you have that dark theme still, but it's not coming from the person that's meant to be the love interest. And that to me is the biggest difference because like um, a perfect example relating them to my novels is that people like to think of my dust walkers as a dark romance because they're monsters and they eat humans and stuff like that. But my dust walkers, despite them being a very big entity for darkness, um, are not negative, cruel. They accidentally try to eat their, their partner, but they don't want to, they don't want to harm them. And that's the big distinction there. And that's why I have dark themes, but not a dark romance. That's a good example of it. I was gonna say, the dust walkers are mostly sweet babies. Yeah, <laughs> we, 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 we stand a sweet cinnamon roll of, of a Duskwalker here in, in Orpheus. I, 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 we, we did three episodes on one of your books because the world building and the density that you pack into that is, is really fascinating. Is that something that you intended to happen or is that something that just sort of as the books came out of you, you found yourself? Because like if you go to your website, there are very detailed notes about the world and the Mavka and and what they do and who they are. Was that an extension of what you like in, in your in your books, in your media, or was it something that just sort of happened on its own? I think for me. I'm a very visual person um, with there's this scale. I can't remember what the scale is talking uh, called, but basically it's the different way you imagine things. Um, and some people can see an apple for being really solid and some people can't see anything at all in the same way that some people, when they look at words, they can hallucinate the story in their head and other people just see words. Um, and for me, I am very much on the fire scale. I can see it. I can taste it. I can smell it. And when I started writing, I had like the plot points for the story. I needed it all to make sense. I don't like, I try to avoid as many loopholes and like plot holes as I can. Um, and I try to make it all make sense so that the, the readers aren't left with questions. Um, like a good example of that, which we can talk about later, which you guys are going to giggle about. But um, my dust walkers are seven feet tall. Right, and the the brides are mainly between five foot one and five foot seven. They, I didn't want them to have portal p- pussies, so I was like, <laughs> it has to make sense. It has to make sense. It has to make sense as to why this gigantic thing can fit inside. And so I did the spell, and like that's a part of that world building that just brings on that little bit of extra detail. And then I started doing that for the entire story, and so I just kept adding detail and going deeper and deeper into that background and into the world building. And every author, I I think most authors have that, but their not ability but desire to lay that all down in words um for their reader sometimes doesn't always happen whereas for me i just um i'm a big book girl my books are chunky like they're all (laughs) way over the norm for word count and like i squish them all in but i just i had to get them out and then i just went if nobody wants to read these giant books because my world building then so be it but people like it and so that's a good thing for me um yeah for me that's that's why I put it all in there is because I wanted it to make sense and I wanted them, I wanted there to be not so many questions. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I wanted people to be able to have questions and be excited for the next books. And that's why I tend to have like little drops of like spoilers at tease for the next books, but I don't like to lay it all out and just like, this is the, the story and here's a whole bunch of word vomit. That's just 
too much to digest. I try to sprinkle it in throughout the whole series. And that's what the series is doing. It's building. Mm -hmm. It's building and it's building and we're getting bigger and bigger. And depending on how far people are into, every book has a different aspect. Like um, Assault to Keep is the introduction. So we it's a lot more info-dumping in some way um, because we, we have to quickly learn um, about the demons, we have to quickly learn about Duskwalkers, we've got to go back to the fact that the world is semi-stuck in the 1700s, despite it being in the 2000s, um, like tw 2020s, which is what its time frame is. So the classified technically is dystopian because of that, but I ignore that and just go fantasy. Um, <laughs> so I have to go through all of that, explain the magical aspects and really introduce the series, which is why I have the prologue the way I've written it, um, which is some people don't like that prologue style, but it's such a big world and there's so much more going on later that I would have had to sprinkle that in and just stop you from reading. I'd rather just get it out of the way. But in book two, we get a little bit more of the dust walkers and the demons and the demon king, but we also then have the pregnancy trope. And a lot of people hate the pregnancy trope, and I understand why, but the reason why I have it in this book in the way that I've written it is simply because you cannot learn about the Mavka or Duskwalkers any other way because they have no idea. They forget everything. And so right. they can't be like, this is what how a baby is formed for us. Instead, we get to visually see how that happens. And that's a part of that world building. That's what the pregnancy trope is in A Soul to Heal. And then touch, we move on to the human aspect of things and the demon slayer act of things. And then in guide, um, we go into the elves and we touch more on what they're like. And then we go into Assault to Revive, which is even more into the demon slayers and stuff. But each book is building the series and each book is giving you that information, but on a slower arc. Yeah, that's it. Just that's how it ended up being. <laughs> no, no, it's great. You, you, you mentioned the the spell uh, in order to uh, facilitate make Raya's, uh, well, for lack of a better term, a, a tardis, her vagina, a tardis. You know, make it bigger on the inside. <laughs> um, and it, it, I actually just went back and revisited that episode this week. We're we're pulling. I we pull a clip from the vault every week and. In honor of talking to you this week, I went back and pulled the clip where Katie explained that to me. And I have not, we've done almost 40 episodes of this show now, and I still haven't heard anything quite like casting a magical spell to make uh, a giant penis fit yep. inside a normal human-sized vagina. Yep. But since we brought <laughs> it up. Should have been poking her in the heart. Right? Seriously. Uh, since we brought it up and we, we talked about it, off off pod here what goes into designing a monster dick like when when because that's that's one of the things we talk about on the show is the creativity not just in the books but specifically in some of these dicks so when you're <laughs> when you're setting out to create this comically large but accurate i would argue he's seven foot two he's a, a large creature what goes into that like did you ever have a point where you were like no, that's too unrealistic. That's too this. The uh, needs needs more girth. Like, how? What, what is the what's the process here? So it was really funny when I was writing a soul to keep, and I came up to having to describe what his dick would look like. I sat there. I shit you not, with my elbows on the table, my hands like together, <laughs> and like tapping my chin. And the thought that went in my head was, how fucked up can I make it? Oh. <laughs> That is the best thing I've ever heard. 
mission fucking accomplished. Yes. Oh, my right? God. How can I? Yes. We should always be shooting for the stars like that. <laughs> right. And so it started off, it started off with the dick being just big. And then I was like, well, their blood is purple. So you got to make it purple. You know, I, I, I wanted, cause I knew I was going to do some really weird stuff with their dicks. I did not want to make their blood red and I didn't want to make their dicks red cause I didn't want to give them red rockets. Um, <laughs> it, it's that deviation from that. Cause that's, yeah. So I went purple. And then with Orpheus, I was like, well, he's got fish fins hanging from his arms, so screw it. He could fish fins on fish um, fins going up his penis. And then I really like the idea of that deep groove because that can be a tool. It can be a clit stimulator. It can really squish into certain places. It's a nice little sort of thing. But it has a later function that you'll discover in a book that's not even out yet. Yes. So the, oh. it actually has a function. There's there's something for it, um, which will be explained later. But then with oh the, my God, the I tentacles, and then with the tentacles, they they have multiple. I like things to have a reason. You know what I mean? So the tentacles, I was like, I can't just give him tentacles and not explain as to why he'd have them. And so they do. They have two functions. One is to stop them, like when they start getting erected, to stop them from actually extruding. So like they they hold on and they latch mm-hmm. down, and they also protect. Uh, so that they don't dry out because if they dry out um, it starts to hurt you know bringing on a little bit of emergency to certain situations Um, (laughs) (laughs) but the other one is they're a I don't know if reverse is the right word but it's all I can think of it's a reverse way to not it's a latch so when he comes they can't get away so that's what they're I told you that yeah you you did did. but I, 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 I didn't think of it as I learned about knots on this show, too. Yeah, he did. Uh, so I was like, oh, I understand that reference. Uh, <laughs> but I, that's fascinating because it – and I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because for me personally, the idea of tentacles anywhere near anyone's bits is off-putting. But they're functional, and I appreciate functionality. Yeah. If I remember correctly, when I told you that they were for holding onto her thighs and keeping her uh, like attached, you were like, "That's what your that's what your hands are for, Orpheus." Yeah, yeah. That's what your hands are for. I mean, that, but again, <laughs> I'm I'm applying my weak, basic human, human logic, human yeah. standards to a seven foot two dusk walker named uh, Orpheus, uh, and, and we named we named the other one Tom. We did. His name is Magnar. Yeah, his name is Magnar. We we didn't have a name for him at that point. We called him Tom. Yeah, it's over the other Mag, 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 Mag the other Mavka, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you touched on it earlier. You, you said that like kind of when 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 you were first putting your books out into the world, you didn't have a lot of author friends, um, and and now you're starting to develop those relationships. Uh, could you speak to the sort of interesting dynamic between? the value of having a circle of like-minded creatives, other authors, despite the, the, the writing being a very solitary act. So sometimes you need people to, to have fun with. You need people in your corner that are going to be there when you have a good release and when you get that little orange banner on Amazon and you need them there to just keep you pushing some days. But they also bring fun to a solitary task because the amount of times that I've just gone, Lord, send me, send me some help because I need it and just explode about the fact that my book is just being an 
absolute pain in the dick to write. And so, like, I just I get I get so frustrated with my book, and everyone feels that way. And like, we complain about the scenes that are really like really hard to get out, and we complain about the things that no one else can understand. You know, I I have a partner, I have my parents, I have best friends, I have all that, and they're not in the author world, and so their solution for something can sometimes be very simple, but unfortunately, it's not a simple solution to to a, pe- a problem that's wider. You know, like um. If I say I have a problem with a scene, like my friend will be like, well, why don't you just not write that scene? And it's like, because the scene is integral to the story, it's just being <laughs> a pain, you know what I mean? And so like having that though, that relationship is really, really good to be able to have that like-minded um, relationships. And like Kaya, who interviewed me, um, is someone that I met earlier this year when I went to a, an event and her and I have become best friends. Um, I ended up moving from Sydney to Queensland and she already lives here. Um, she ended up being 15 minutes from the house I ended up choosing. And so, like, now having a physical friend to do that with, I I had a day I was really struggling to write. I felt very alone, like very alone. And my partner was away. And so I just went, please, can we go for lunch? And, like, we just sat there and complained <laughs> about our books. And it was so therapeutic for my soul that I was able to come home and just knock out um, a couple of thousand words. And that's what you really need. You need someone who can be with you, but there has to be an insane amount of trust with someone, with some people. So it's very, it, it can be hard in that sense. Cause like you got to put your feelers out and sometimes you don't always drive with someone. It's not in a negative way. Like there's some authors that like I've tried to reach out with and they haven't wanted to clutch back and which is absolutely fine. And I still adore their books and I still push their books out and I put them in my newsletters, even though I've gotten that response. So it's also taking into consideration everyone's different. Like I'm an ambivert. I explained that earlier um, before we had the, so we started, but um, yeah. I'm an ambivert. So I'm an introverted extrovert. And so most authors are introverted. So I understand that I can come off quite abrasively. Um, so I don't put it against anyone if they don't jive with me because I'm abrasive. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I, I would, I would, I've never used the term ambivert. I would, I would say that as well, because if you, if you knew me and I said that I was introverted, you wouldn't know that, but I have to be very cautious. I'm a large, I'm a six foot two big bald guy covered in tattoos. I have to be careful of how I'm coming across. Uh, so I can't come in hot a lot of times. So I have to be very, very delicate uh, with that. Another thing that you talked about that I'd like to, to discuss here is your, your work experience prior to becoming, you know, a, a full-time author and how that helped you navigate the business side of things. And, and so I, I was wondering it, one thing in particular you talked about, Katie and I come from a theater background. We were actors at one point in our life. And people loved to tell us, oh, it's great exposure, which is another way for saying, I don't want to pay you. But there is value in getting that exposure. So could you, for, for an author, and you, you, you talked about, you know, this is my starting price for a new author. And this is as I get a little bit bigger, I'm going to move my price up to this. Could you, in your your own words describe the difference in your opinion between working for exposure and working for free. Like where do you draw that line? It really depends. So like I have accepted exposure from people who are very small followings. Um, and really the exposure is in reverse. They get exposure from me instead. And 
I think it really comes down to, for me personally, it's the response I get from the person. If they've come across really sweet, really lovely, I am happy to help and assist. Um, and it's, it's very, it's very hard because, there is a value in working for exposure and there is free exposure. Like you've got, if I was to send a PR package to a large TikToker, you know what I mean? Like that would be free exposure for me and they may have a much bigger following for me uh, than me, which would be amazing. But when it comes to being paid, that's what feeds your family. That's right. what clothes you. That's what keeps you being able to write and or work or do whatever it is that you need to do without needing to go to get a second job, run yourself ragged until you can't produce work anymore or your stresses are too high. Um, a perfect example of this is I work with quite a few artists and I try to find little hidden gems if I can um, because I want to I want to see them do well. And I, I've picked up a few artists who – I've had to tell them that they need to increase their prices. Mm-hmm. Um, I've told, and they're like, oh, but you know, you did this for me. You know, you gave me great exposure. And it's like, that's great. That's not what puts food on your table. You know, I don't mind paying more because that means that you'll be one, less stressed. Two, you'll be healthier um, and you'll have a healthier work-life social balance because people forget that being social in some form is a f- part of your job it's a part of your life and so if you're not social in some form your work life will not go well your home life will not go well you need a balanced life and if you are trying to work for pennies so and a lot of exposure comes from that like you end up working for pennies if you do too much exposure and so if you're working for pennies going through a lot of going through exposure and stuff like that you're not you're just overworking yourself and I think when people ex- ex- approach people and go, I would like to give you exposure, they have to remember that they're not the only person doing that. Um, right. That it can't just be 10 people going, yeah, we'll give you exposure. And then maybe three people paying because that, that's, that may not be enough. And like, for me, I, I never worked in industries where exposure was a big thing for me. Um, I worked in, um, like I said, physically intensive laborist jobs. I was a truck driver. I was a forklift operator, crane operator. I was a line leader on a steel manufacturing company and the first female um, Australia-wide on this particular large company's factory floor. Um, yeah. And so – and, like, for them, they they – I started getting all of these tickets and I started going up through the ranks and I had all the guys going, well, why are you like, why, how come she gets to do all that? Why is she getting paid so much? And that's because I fought for my value. Um, right. And I went, well, you can keep me, who is one of the fastest line leaders and one of the safest crane operators and forklift operators, or I can leave and go find someone who will pay me probably more <laughs> than what I'm asking for. And so it's understanding your value and understanding it realistically because we always, some people, they, we don't seem to fall in a nice little going, this is what I'm worth. We, we either underestimate or overestimate and you really have to do some self-analysis and a lot of research and find what that worth is and then go for it and push. And if people won't give it to you, push them away because they're not there to be healthy. They're not there to see you do well. They're there to see themselves do well. And that's something you have to understand with exposure. It's more about them as much as it is about you. Yes, absolutely. And I, I don't know if this is as, as big of a, an issue in the publishing world or in the world of being an author, but there's also a risk of driving down the prices because you know you might say, I feel like you should pay me X amount of money 
And then they're like, well, I'm just going to go get somebody else who will do it for free. So you have to find that balance between taking too much exposure and, and finally, like, you know, training the people around you to actually ask to be paid every now and again. Especially for indie authors, in slight pivot here, you're not just an author. You're an editor in your case. Uh, you're also your own marketing person. You seem to be pretty savvy when it comes to the business of publishing. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you a big question, and that is, Opal Rain, you've been given a, a magic wand, and you can fix one thing about independent publishing with the wave of a wand. It doesn't have to be anything big, but what is just one thing that you would like to see change, uh, especially for independent authors? Uncertainty. If, if I had to change anything, it would be uncertainty. It's... Mm -hmm. Uncertain if the person that you're working with is someone you can trust or if they're the level of quality that you need, if they're going to steal your manuscript and pirate it, if Amazon's going to steal your manuscript and allow it to be pub to be pirated. You know, there's so much uncertainty that comes with being an author and it's because you have to work with so many other people and there's just so much that goes into it. Like you could be slammed for the tiniest thing. Um, you know, I could have, like, I have sensitivity readers and I, I, I pour a lot of trying to have my uh, healthy book. You know, I want it to be edited well. I wanted it to be proofed well. I want it to be um, safe and well represented for the people I'm trying to represent, you know, but I could, I have, you know, a team, a, a large, I try to get a large team of different people for each book and they could miss something and they have, and people have tried to cancel me. Um, and it's that uncertainty that's not fair. Like I had someone who didn't like that I missed a trigger warning for when I brought a soul to revive and they tried to slam me for it. The book had been out a week. Um, and I asked my sensitivity readers, my editor, my betas, and I was like, trigger warnings, let's get them all. And I missed one and I'm human. I don't have any triggers. I'm very, I'm a very desensitized person due to, I've dealt with a lot. <laughs> um, and, and so there's always that uncertainty and I would like to take that away. Like just from everything that I do, you know, the risk of putting it to other people's hands and not having it do well. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything about the reader uncertainty. Oh, like That's natural. That's going to happen. And I'm a big believer that a one star review can be just as powerful as a five star review. Of course, in negative ways, but like someone could say in a one star review that this was too dark for them and that can make other people go, ooh, yay, oh, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but it, when it comes to the working relationships and what our platforms are going, our stuff is going on to and what the kind of platforms are and how they operate, there's always that bit of uncertainty. You know, it's, it's not black and white. It's a massive scale of colors and it can be quite frightening. Um, and as a new author, it's daunting. It's especially when you're on your own, it's daunting. So. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I, I am a firm believer that the bravest thing that you can do as a human being is create something and share it. And, I mean, we think about that just talking about other people's books. Yeah. You know, there have been times where we've gone back and listened to things and we're like, ooh, we, yep, we missed that one. Let's, let's pull that out. It doesn't make the show better. There's no need for it. So let's, let's lose it. We are closing in uh, at, towards the end of our time here. But so we got about 10 minutes left in our conversation. So I wanted to start trying and maybe pepper you with some more quest personal questions. 
uh, to get to know you. We have a couple of, uh, of reader questions or listener questions as well. But the first question that I have for you, I, I didn't want to make the I didn't want to make the call. But when I was listening to the interview with Kaya, you did personally identify as a goth. Yeah. So I've never had the opportunity to ask a goth this, but I've heard the goth rule is you if you're getting dressed to go out, you have to stay out as long as it took you to get ready. Well, yes. So I I have different stages of goth. I have glam goth. I have gremlin goth. Um, and and nine times out of ten, I'll be gremlin goth. And that is me. Like I've I shaved my head into a mohawk, like a, a seriously long mohawk, because Ooh. I got so tired of just doing my hair every day. And I was like, great, if my head's shaved, I'm done for the hair. But it's the face, and then the clothing, and the corsets, and the three inch platform boots. You know. Yeah, it's if I'm going glam goth, I want to be going out for a while. I want people to look at me and go, "Oh wow, amazing!" Or "Oh my god, it's a weirdo run," you know. <laughs> so like, yeah, the, that's what I want. Whereas like my gremlin goth is like my everyday house goth, where I'm just like, I'm gonna go out. It's questionable whether or not these are my PJs. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. I don't know. We have a we have a, a chain of stores over here in America called Coles. It's just sort of generic, like your mom. It's, it's just, you know, you get your Dockers, your khakis, and some Levi's, but I would love to see, like, the Coles, like, just goblin goth section. <laughs> you know, like, what that would look like. Like, if Coles tried to do Hot Topic. Comfortable pants and T-shirts with cool bands on them. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. So I'm gonna pass the I'm gonna pass the baton to you. You've got some yep. some listener I, questions for, I do. for Opal. I do. So we reached out to our listeners and asked if they had any questions for you, and I got a couple back, thankfully. So let's go ahead and start with listener Murphy would like to know about your character development process. Oh, that's a long question. I will try to answer as quickly as possible. For me, I tend to pick three emotions. Um, and they're the, they're the base as a character. And that's how I keep my characters themselves rather than them going off on their own tangent and becoming, you know, Bob from down the road rather than who they're meant to be. And I give them three emotions and those three emotions will drive them. And my Dustwalkers are a perfect example of that. Orpheus is sad, he is lonely, and he is broken. And there he's three striving emotions. And then he has other ones. He's hopeful as well, but that's Orpheus. And then you've got, like, for instance, um, Faunus, who is curious, happy, and uh, striving to be the most annoying shit he can. Like, he just wants <laughs> to be funny. He is he, funny, he's funny, he's goofy, and that's who he is. Um, but then he has his own issues. Um, Ruick, for instance, from... The Witch Slayer, he is hateful, he is angry, and he is stupid. <laughs> and so every action that they do, I start with that base, and that base then grows them. And they can have exterior, um, they can have fears, and that adds to them. They can have hopes, dreams that are inside and outside their relationship. And I start into yeah, I have like an interwoven sort of system of all of these things that make up a person and I stick to them. And that's how I start. That's fantastic. I, I wanted it. Don't ask Jim's question. Uh, I mean, no, ask Jim's question, but I, I have a note to add before you do that. Okay. Go ahead. Good Lord. Reading over my shoulder. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's get to the next question. Uh, listener Lauren would like to know, if you were a Duskwalker, what would your skull be? Oh, no. Um, 
I don't know. Okay, so I love wolves, and so for ages it was a wolf skull. Orpheus's skull was basically what I wanted. But then I made Faunus, and I was like, oh, damn, he's hot. <laughs> you know what I, mean? so, um, I want a hotter I skull. <laughs> I think it's just I the mean, fact a sexier that... Skull. I think it's the fact that the skull is like squished. It's not as long. And then the horns really come in forward and just kind of, yeah, I don't know. I, both of those. They're the it's, two. It, that's my favorite design of all of your dusk walkers is yeah. the, I love the ram horns. They make everything. So I don't know. There's something about them. They're very um, endearing, I guess. Yeah. Faunus <laughs> is as smooth. Faunus is as smooth as his horns. <laughs> Wink. Uh, no, I just, so I, I wanted to preface this next question by saying I've been wondering the same exact thing. Okay. All right. <laughs> so Carl, Carl and listener Jim would like to know, uh, have you considered taking Prince's 1984 smash hit Purple Rain and adapting it to your name? Opal you Rain. Opal Rain. Rain. No? No? No. <laughs> Not a I know, I've no. heard it. I've heard it. That's a, I don't. That's a I hard no. Listen. Yeah, no, I don't know it's this fine. song very well. That's okay. It's no. fine. I should have asked you, how old are you turning today? What is your birthday? If you, if you don't mind divulging that. Yeah. Turn 30. <laughs> you turn 30. Awesome. I'm 35. Girl, 45. So you're the baby here. No, so I, Perhaps that's why the Purple Rain doesn't stick with you quite as well, because it doesn't really get me either. It's a few years before me as well. So and that I, was just for you. And I would fight anybody who said it, even an unkind word about Prince Rogers Nelson. But uh, <laughs> No, I've been walking around the house like humming the tune purple rain over and over again and like changing the words you yeah. know only want to see you chatting something something opal rain uh opal and rain. so yeah. but she's just like please <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna she's gonna say the outro oh my god and that's that's all folks thank you, you so much him. for coming i hope uh, we'll ring goodbye but that but that, that pretty much is the end of the end of the conversation i hope it was relatively painless for you opal rain thank you so much for joining us if if anybody wants to uh go learn more about you they can go to your website which i believe is just opalrain.com is that correct that is correct excellent opal rain thank you so much for joining us today on our author profile I had a lot of fun thank you for inviting me 